You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Just so you know, this episode does contain descriptions of domestic violence and homicide. Please take care when listening. If you're someone in need of help, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at Okay, so we've now followed the dotted line of history from the Plains Indian Wars all the way to the present day. We've seen how the brutality of the Sand Creek Massacre started it all, how it propelled the Cheyenne and Arapaho and their allies to give up on making peace with the U.S. government, how their war parties threw themselves into battle for revenge and to safeguard their way of life. And in one battle after another, how the Plains tribes resoundingly triumphed Yet the army wasn't interested in diplomacy or recognizing the tribe's right to sovereignty. What mattered was clearing the so-called hostiles off the land they wanted to own, even if that meant genocidal tactics, like cutting the tribes off from their children and their bison herds. Talking to tribal members about this history, we've heard how raw and recent it still feels. As Westerners, some of us might prefer to call this all distant history and close the book on it. But when we look at life on reservations today, we can't help but wonder, are the Plains Indian Wars really over? It's one of the first questions that Lynette Graybull asks when she talks to audiences full of police officers and social workers and educators. Lynette is Northern Arapaho Hunkpapa Lakota and the director of Not Our Native Daughters, an organization working to educate people about the high rates of human trafficking and homicides in Indian country. That's one of the, one of the first things I start with, is I start with kind of the statistical view of Indian country what we face in Indian country across our nation, and to also expound on the fact that the exploitation and rape and murder of indigenous women, children, and persons is no new thing. It's not a, it's not a new hashtag or a new element that has to be added to social justice movement It's something that's always been since the first ships have arrived on this land. 
Here's just a few of the statistics that Lynette brings up when she talks to people. Native American youth have the highest suicide rates across Indian country. Uh, We have the lowest life expectancy. We have the worst statistics in health disparities. We suffer extreme poverty comparison to third world countries. And yet people still, you know, send support to third world countries. But it's right here in your backyard, right here in, in our states. And here's a few more statistics. Believe it or not, Native Americans are actually the number one ethnic group most likely to be killed by police and are incarcerated at more than double the national average, the second most of any ethnic group after African Americans, and four times more often than white people. And maybe the greatest proof that the Plains Indian Wars are still reverberating is that Native Americans are five times more likely to die by homicide than whites. And this violence has hit indigenous women and girls the hardest. Native American women were the most stalked, raped, and murdered and exploited above any other race in this country. In fact, indigenous women and girls are 10 times more likely to be murdered than their white counterparts. Let me just say that again. 10 times as likely to be killed in a homicide. In fact, it's their third leading cause of death. Lynette remembers finding out about that last statistic. Now, me being a full-blooded Native American woman, that impacted me. That impacted raising my children. That impacted looking at my own daughter. And something just sparked in me and said, we need to do something about it. And so, she did. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Ever since I hired on to cover the tribal news beat in Wyoming, I've been doing stories about the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous people, with a focus on the people who were stepping up to stop it. It didn't take me long to connect with Lynette. The first time I met her in person, we scheduled to meet at the Shoshone Rose Casino outside Lander, Wyoming. When she walked up, I immediately felt her presence. First of all, she's a glamorous lady with long, colorful earrings and a dynamism in the way she holds herself and speaks. But she's also fast to form friendships, just a very warm person. After our interview, she offered to take me to visit the Day family. We drove out to a lovely home under the cottonwoods in the middle of the Wind River Reservation. A breeze blew in through the screen door as we sat on the couch. Talking with the Days was an intensely moving experience, one of the most impactful interviews of my career. They told us about witnessing their child, Don Day, endure a violent relationship that law enforcement failed to stop. Dawn was always spunky, funny, someone who didn't give up on her relationships. But that may have been her downfall. Boaters found her floating in a nearby lake on the Wyoming Plains. No one was ever arrested for Dawn's murder, and authorities dismissed her case as an accidental drowning. Her father says that wasn't true, that she was beaten to death, and he was fighting to keep the case open. Their story visibly affected Lynette. Normally, she doesn't talk about her own history, but that day, she shared it. 
all this I can relate to because I once was young and was in a violent relationship and just hearing you speak just triggers so many different things for myself and my own story because I was in an abusive relationship and got beat up and I was thrown out of cars too. Growing up, Lynette lived as a homeless teenager and ended up in an abusive relationship herself. I always remember thinking that he would change and I always thought he did really love me, he just had some problems. And, you know, one day he'll be better. I remember thinking that way. And, but I also remember being very low self-worth. And, you know, there was a horrible day in my life where he put a gun to my head and put a bullet, a few bullets in there and spin the wheel and pulled the trigger. And I remember that day and I remember praying in my head that asking God if he lets me out of here, I will never come back to him ever again. And that's what I did. Thank God I'm still alive. Thank God I have three beautiful children that I'm able to raise and teach them about this. So I cry for Dawn Day and us as Native women, it is my responsibility to tell these stories to prevent any of our other Arapaho nieces and daughters and sisters to never be in the situation that I was in. Lynette says she felt called to work for Indigenous people with stories like hers and Dawn's. One time, she went to speak at one of the high schools on the reservation. I spoke at Wyoming Indian a couple of weeks ago and I talked to the high school and we were talking about this very same thing. And when I asked the audience how many had um, either missing or murdered family members in their own family, I would say at least 40% of the room hands went up. And a lot of that is tied to dating violence. I interview Lynette again in a quiet room at the local library. Lynette tells me it hasn't been easy to survive and find sources of healing. I survived a lot of things. And a lot of young women that I was encircled with during that time and during those years, a lot of them did not make it out alive. Or a lot of them didn't survive life in itself, either from addiction or going to prison or, you know, whatever, whatever the case is. But my, my trauma and my past is, is not a pretty one. And it took a lot of years of me going through various forms of trauma-informed care. For Lynette, her path toward healing involved helping others. She started volunteering for organizations working to stop human trafficking. I went through training, I went through education to understand the different formats of trauma-informed care, the psychological impact of trauma, especially in children and adolescents um, and, in, and in adults. And this journey of my own healing has led me to where I am today. She started the nonprofit Not Our Native Daughters 15 years ago to advocate for Indigenous women and girls, well before there was an MMIW hashtag 
She began traveling the country, talking to tribal councils about the realities of the crisis. They would tell me, this doesn't happen here. Human trafficking is a city thing. It you know, happens in Los Angeles, Seattle. So I had to change my approach to tribes. And my approach to tribes during that time was I was always able to find a victim from their tribe. I was always able to find a missing person, a murdered person, a, a trafficking victim, a teen, a missing child, whatever. And I had my approach to get their buy-ins for these trainings was that I had to approach them and say, this is your tribal member, and this is how I was able to get the buy-in from tribes to understand that it does happen in rural regions, it does happen in tribes, and it is happening to our people. One person this tragedy has happened to, not just once, but twice, is Nicole Wagon. We'll hear about her story and her journey to becoming a vocal MMIP activist when we come back. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. Northern Arapaho member Nicole Wagon is the mother of five daughters, which means she's a very busy lady. One day in early January 2019, her oldest daughter, Jocelyn, called her up. I was going to go see her, but I was working out at my local gym and um, chose not to because I know when we get together, we tend to um, visit and I needed to get my other daughters ready for a basketball trip. I didn't want to stay out late, but I just felt a strong need to go see her. Nicole was very close to her 30-year-old daughter, Jocelyn. They had a really unique relationship. I had her such at a young age, we kind of like, she would always say, Mom, we kind of grew up together, and basically, you know, it felt that way. Um, and as the firstborn, basically for me, she wasn't really mine, she was my parents. But Jocelyn was one of her great joys. Made everybody feel good and good listener. And, you know, if somebody's having a bad day, she would just turn it around, flip the script and make them feel better and look at the brightest things of life. Jocelyn was a vibrant member of the Wind River Reservation community, too, famous for her singing voice. Everybody knew that she sang, and she... um would get requested by birthdays or funerals, and she sang in my dad's band. So he he belonged to uh, a band called Sun Creek. Nicole stayed in close daily touch with her daughter, but still, she had a lot going on that winter afternoon and never got a chance to drop by Jocelyn's house. She went home and got her kids ready for the basketball game. But then... That morning I woke up, before my aunt called, I woke up with an extreme headache. And after knowing the details of everything, it makes sense to me as a mother. Like my grandmother would share with me that I gave life to my daughters. I can feel their pain, and I felt my daughter's pain. Nicole didn't think much about this headache and went on about her morning until... 
my aunt gave me a call. Wanted to know where I was at and wanted to get to my daughter's house immediately. When I got to her house, all the uh, law enforcement was there with yellow tape. Yellow tape strung around Jocelyn's home because she and her boyfriend, Rudy Perez, had been murdered. Nicole says that because it happened off the reservation, the state of Wyoming conducted the investigation. She didn't know it then, but that was a good thing. The state took it on. The Houston Police Department, because that's where the jurisdiction was in charge. So the detective that was assigned, I have a lot of respect for him, we're good friends to this day, and he's ready to work with them, not against them. I really felt that they worked with each other. Again, the key is open communication to make sure that my daughter's case was going to remain open, not mm. going to the bottom of that. Right. Was that a concern at certain points? At certain points, I felt like that, frustrated, but I felt assured once there was a team assigned to me. For the Riverton police, a double homicide was unusual, and they made it a priority to solve it. But still, the investigation kept grinding on and on. Then, something unimaginable happened. A little over a year after Jocelyn's murder, Nicole's 23-year-old daughter, Jade, disappeared. Jade had two little girls and was just getting ready to go into a training program for a medical career. For a month, no one knew where Jade was or what happened to her. Now Nicole was not only trying to get justice for one daughter's murder, but was also searching for another child. Even though Native Americans account for only 3% of the state's population, they account for 14% of missing person cases and 21% of the state's murder cases. But when Jade went missing, there was another young lady that went missing at the same time in Montana. She was at a rest area. They couldn't um, find her. And their family reached out to my daughters, and we were just supporting each other through that ordeal. It was ironic how we found our kids within the same time frame. Her name was Selena Not Afraid, very young, 16 years old. And so we just supported each other. We still support each other with the campaigns of MMIC. We kind of have that connection and that bond. Nicole says she needed help from other families like these because the federal law enforcement and the Bureau of Indian Affairs, also known as the BIA, didn't provide much at all. It was on federal lands. It was on the reservation. And there's no communication. There's nobody assigned. There's no advocates that care. I'm not impressed with the BIA at all. And nobody can ever get a straight answer or the support or the encouragement. Not impressed, but I have to give respect to the state. Because my daughter Jocelyn is through the state process and my daughter Jade is through the federal and BIA process. Nicole has an up-close view of the serious jurisdictional gaps that Native Americans deal with when they try to get justice. While the state did assign an advocate to help her navigate the system, the BIA and the FBI did not. For one long month, 
Nicole struggled to get help finding her daughter. Because her daughter was an adult, there was no Amber Alert system to get the public to help look for her. Nicole finally made friends with one BIA police officer. He would stop by and check on us daily, and I just had some kind of intuition. I said, I know you're the one that's going to find my daughter. And he just looked at me, and I said, you're the one. Don't ask me why I know that. And I said, but you're the one. And he was the one. I don't know how to explain it, but when he came to me and asked me for certain things, I didn't feel good, and my daughters were looking at me, and I said, um, i got to go pray. And the kids were just watching me, and I said, um, I believe they found your sister now. And the very next day, when they finally officially told me, that it, I could feel it in my heart. And both times that my daughters have passed, I can honestly say I felt it when life left my body. That's how close I am to my kids. Jade's body was found on the reservation. Not long after, the BIA decided her death was an accident and closed the case. This isn't unusual. In fact, U.S. attorneys declined to prosecute over half of violent crimes in Indian country. Meanwhile, Jocelyn's case was being investigated by the state of Wyoming, and it was still open. Recently, four people were charged with the murder. Nicole remembers that day well. December 9th of 21. That's when I was notified. And I remember the date because it's the day after my birthday. They all came to me and a belated birthday gift to me and they wanted to talk to me in person and I really respect them for giving me that respect before everything hit the public media. So now she's waiting for one daughter's case to work its way through the state court system and another daughter's case that she's working hard to get reopened because the feds have decided not to investigate it. Lynette says working as an advocate for families like Nicole's, she's learned what a tangled mess it can be. There's no clear avenue to justice in Indian country um, and it talks about our jurisdictional issues. and. To explain it on a board would just be like squiggly lines all over the place. She says federal prosecutors only go after the most clean-cut cases that they have the best chance of winning, the ones with eyewitnesses and testimony from victims. When they don't have that kind of evidence, they dismiss it and call it an accident. In fact, over 40% of the time, crimes are dismissed because of, quote, weak or inadmissible evidence. So the same perpetrators just keep victimizing over and over. She says only about a third of cases involving Native Americans even get investigated. I know in my other reservation in Standing Rock, it goes in North Dakota into South Dakota. Standing Rock is the size of a, of a state, and so is Wind River. But sometimes I don't even have enough officers to, to cover, you know, an entire... So that's why some calls don't get... Another epidemic across Indian country is we get domestic violence calls across Indian country and not even 50% of them get answered. And some of those victims become, end up murdered or killed because 911 calls are not answered. So it's, a, it's an issue of public safety and it's an issue for tribal law enforcement and uh, tribal BIA um, not having what they need to execute justice. And Lynette says 
that the media doesn't help the problem. She cites a recent study in Wyoming showing that the media only covered about 30% of indigenous homicide cases, but covered over 50% of non-native homicides. When a white person went missing in the local paper or any media, media outlets, that person was always depicted in the best light. They were depicted as a, they, they, was a, they were the star in, in their high school or, you know, their family does this or, you know, they, they had good attributes to say about this person. Now, when a Native American person was missing and was in the paper or, or media outlet, you know, they mentioned that they were alcoholics, or they were known to party, or they were known to occupy bars even, um, that they have family members who were convicted, like things that were not relevant to the person's case. That discrepancy was on full display back in 2021 when a young white woman named Gabby Petito went missing in Wyoming's Grand Teton National Park. Seemingly everywhere you turn, whether on TV or social media, it's about Gabby. The awareness is sparking several important... Here's Nicole again. That went global compared to my daughter's case. When that happened, social media picked up my daughter's story again, but i got to thank Petito's family for awakening the issues up again for the state of Wyoming. It's pretty sad that somebody had to you know, pass away, but I feel the pain of the mother of Petito because been there, done that. You know, that was pretty sad. It doesn't matter who you are or what color you are. The point being is a mother lost her child. How come the news media didn't cover my daughter? Is it because she's indigenous? And makes you raise the question. For Nicole and Lynette, these inequities just seem to become more and more obvious. At a missing and murdered Indigenous Women's March on the University of Wyoming campus, Lynette had a chance to make change. I was the last person to speak out of the series of people to speak, and it so happened I was right before Governor, you know, Mark Gordon. And when I realized that I was the last person to speak and he was right after me, I was sitting at the table and I, my, my head started spinning and I was just like, I'm going to propose a task force. And at that time, there was only five other states that had, had that year, they were emerging task force across, you know, these, these, across the nation. And I was like, this is my time, <laughs> you know. But anyways, you know, I, I did my um, presentation and towards the end of my presentation, um, I just humbly asked uh, Governor Gordon to have a Wyoming, you know, MMIW, MMIP task force. The request took the governor by surprise, but he got up after Lynette, and this is what he said. Thank you, Lynette, for your comment about we need to do a task force. Senator Ellis, uh, and I just talked about, let's do this. So we will. I was so honored that he obliged. It wasn't my intent to put him on the spot or anything like that. I did it as gracefully as I could. And ever since then, the task force has been in place. Um, I will say in the couple of years that the task force has been in place, I think a lot has been done. The task force went on to release a study of the problem in Wyoming, some of the data of which you've heard here. Not only is Lynette a member of the task force, but so is Nicole. She worked on the task force to propose an adult Amber Alert system that could have saved her daughter Jade's life if it had been in place. 
and a bill was recently passed to adopt what's called an Ashanti Alert Program in the state to help locate missing people between 18 and 64 years old. Lynette took her message of including the Native American perspective to the entire state when she ran for the U.S. House of Representatives twice, once against Liz Cheney and then again against Harriet Hageman. Here she was at a debate. Another term. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ms. Grable. I am Lynette Grable. I live in the heart of Wyoming in the Wind River Reservation. Um, and you know what? Quite simply, I want to represent the people. I come from the working class and I represent the working class because I know After losing those races, Lynette moved to Denver to be closer to her older son in college and has joined forces with Colorado's MMIP task force, working to pass an even more ambitious bill, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Act. I hop on a Zoom call with Lynette and some of her colleagues in Colorado to learn more about it. Danielle C. Walker Machiapi, Mahung Papa Lakota, Naocheti Shakuni Mahata, Denver, Colorado, Wawati. My name is Danielle C. Walker. I am a citizen of the Standing Rock Sioux Nation um, in North Dakota, but I currently reside in Denver, Colorado, and I am one of the members of the MMIR Task Force of Colorado. Hi, my name is Raven Payment, and I am Ojibwe Anganiangahaga, and I am also a member of the MMIR Task Force of Colorado. Both Danielle and Raven personally witnessed how violence hurt their communities. Raven didn't grow up on the reservation, but still... I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and there were a lot of interactions that I had you know, and, and how I was treated in these communities that I anecdotally knew and my family members, specifically my aunties and my other female cousins, we all knew it as a reality of our lived experience. Danielle did grow up on the reservation in North Dakota. It wouldn't be that uncommon for me to see crime tape or the FBI coming in or hearing my aunties talk about a body they found across the street over coffee, just, you know, very nonchalant, kind of very desensitized. And I, I didn't realize like how serious this was until I started to understand as an adult, like what this really meant and that this was not unusual. And in 2007, my brother um, was found murdered. His body was found burnt up in the backseat of a car and to this day, we still have zero answers on what happened to him. And this was back on the reservation. Um, and then just a couple of years ago, my auntie, my dad's sister was murdered on the streets of Denver. Thankfully, we know what happened to her. We know who her perpetrator is. We're still going through the court process of trying to find, seek justice for her. But this is something that has personally touched me in a lot of different ways. All three women worked tirelessly to pass the new bill that sets aside funds to better investigate these cases and creates an advocate position to help families deal with the logistics and the trauma of these crimes. Soon after our Zoom call in May of 2023, the bill went to the governor's desk for his signature. But still, Raven says the bill is far from perfect. Throughout the process with the initial Senate Bill 150, there was this incredible opposition that came from um, Governor Polis's administration. And a large part of that was based upon wanting to withhold data on just Native people violence. There was a lot of excuses that were thrown around, but essentially they just didn't want to hand over any data. 
A lack of data is a huge issue when it comes to understanding the scope of the problem of why people go missing and are murdered in indigenous communities. Many of the most important sources for numbers, like the Central Bureau of Investigation, are locked up behind firewalls and not accessible to Native researchers. And even if that data is available, it's often inaccurate. Here's Lynette. And this is also a huge problem on the human trafficking side of Indigenous people is that we're constantly misclassified. So you can have a missing person individual in a CBI or in a system, and we can still be misclassified as non-Native American. Um, most often we are classified as either Mexican or Hispanic or even Southeast Asian or Pacific Islander, um, just about every other ethnicity down the line. When I ask them why Colorado is so reluctant to share their data, Raven says, You know, the Department of Public Safety and by extension, Polis' administration kind of took up this narrative that they didn't want to share data because they were worried about it jeopardizing an active investigation, which is absolutely a valid concern. But Raven says they're not interested in that kind of classified data for specific cases. They're interested in trends and big picture analysis. She wonders if lawmakers aren't worried that some of those trends might point an unflattering finger at law enforcement and the justice system. I would actually take this a step further and say that I think what they're worried about is being found either negligent or outright malicious. It's known that Native Americans are killed by police at higher rates than any other ethnicity. Releasing data that shows that could open agencies up to liability. And when you hear stories like Nicole's, Raven's, Danielle's, Lynette's, you can understand why Native Americans traditionally have a long-standing distrust of law enforcement. But it's also deeply connected to the brutal history of American colonization. When the police came to the door, it wasn't to provide security, but often to take away children or women. Raven again. You know, when we walk into a place like the Capitol building or a government building, specifically the Colorado State Capitol, there's this whole dome that is filled with portraits of all of our presidents. And it is filled with these individuals who instituted policies to try to eradicate the existence of Native people. Our ancestors, our great-great-grandfathers, our great-great-grandmothers, like every time we walk in that building, we are confronting the legacy of, you know, these individuals and these policies that tried to make sure that we weren't there and that we wouldn't be able to advocate for ourselves or that we wouldn't have a knowledge of our culture or who our ancestors were. Right now in the U.S., one in every three Indigenous women will experience sexual assault in her lifetime. Lynette says the reasons for those trends go all the way back. There's been studies and research on that from other universities that actually have documentation that the first settlers that came, you know, the Plymouth Rock story, that when that, that land or that region was acquired by the new settlers or the pilgrims, that as more and more ships came in, they offered women and children to the new uh, settlers to do as they please, you know, to these women and children. And they did it as a sign of their 
impurity there. We have conquered these people. We have conquered their land. We have conquered the resources here. As a society, we haven't been willing to shine a light on that history, Lynette says. It's just entrenched and it's embodied in the American system, so to speak, because in our public educational system, you know, we're still we're still painting, you know, Columbus as a hero, you know, not a rapist, not an exploiter, not a trafficker. You know, and this, these are the things that he was, you know, along with all of his other comrades, you know. I asked Nicole if she sees the same connection between the high rates of violent crimes on her reservation and the history of the Plains Indian Wars. Yes, I believe there is a connection. I know I can trace my bloodline all the way to Sand Creek and what happened to our ancestors and our people back then. So if you really think about it, this has been going on, which is very unfortunate. Nicole lived in Germany with the military, and she sees a parallel between the genocide of Native Americans and the Holocaust. For example, Witnessing living in Germany for seven years, watching what their people went to, watching communism, watching East and West Germany, and visiting concentration camps. And then my parents being at the wall when the wall came down. It's the same kind of concept of what happened to our people. You know, I know that Germany has worked pretty hard to try and come to terms with their history of genocide. Is there anything that you kind of wish that the United States would do that you saw maybe over there to kind of just reconcile itself with this history? Yes, I do. Admit it and do something for our people that are struggling every day. You talk about third world countries, right? I believe the reservation in itself is a third world country in our yard now. And I believe it's even worse, even after COVID. So what is the government going to do about it? How can they help and assist? They took all our, our land and you were all put into a box. Reservation land. How do you justify that? Each of these women are doing everything they can think of to stop the violence passed down from the U.S. history of genocide. Nicole organizes an MMIP march on May 5th every year, as well as red dress dances at powwows. She's taught her three remaining daughters how to protect themselves and passed on her calling to become an activist. What gives me the um, strength is my three daughters and my beautiful grandkids. I believe that my daughter's Jade spirit lives on to her kids, and they give me the strength to get up and greet the sun and endure the day. Perhaps most importantly, all four women volunteer as family advocates. Until the government starts hiring enough people to do this work, they're filling the need by doing work like Raven describes. I have a commitment to support families of MMIR and be accountable to them more than I will ever be accountable to the government. So whether that's 
you know, taking a phone call at two o'clock in the morning or understanding that I have a five minute window to, you know, send Denver's police chief an email like, why haven't you gotten back to these family members? Um, that's what I do in my realm that I can control to try to address this crisis. Lynette is now working with an architect to design a traveling monument, a sculpture of an indigenous woman that can journey around the country, educating people about the issue. She's putting out a national call for MMIP's families to submit the names of their lost loved ones. So that we can incorporate their names into the monument, because it is in essence, a memorial, I think not only is going to be an educational piece, but I think it's going to be a piece of honor for these families that majority of them have not received any sort of justice or closure to the cases of their loved ones. Lynette says it's an effort like this that will make real lasting change because at the helm is an indigenous person speaking up for their community. Lynette says she has a big question that keeps her working every day to make change. I don't understand why it's so hard for others to care. I think anybody who is human, who hears someone is missing or someone was found murdered, uh, regardless of race, would be like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. That shouldn't have happened or why is this happening? But why, why is it so hard for them to care is, is really what freaking fires me up. And I just don't understand it. I, I call it a, like a silent crisis across our nation. Next time on The Modern West. Maybe you've noticed that a lot of people are using land acknowledgments at public events to show solidarity with indigenous communities. But what do Native Americans really think about these public acknowledgments? It's a nice idea. Uh, it's a nice thought. I think there's a point where um, they're just words and it becomes performative. We have to go through these steps to get there. They're just really awkward. They're really uncomfortable in a lot of ways. I just hope that they really lead to true action. That shouldn't be the stopping point. It should be the fact that we should all be doing something to accept and acknowledge indigenous people back onto the, to the land that they once belonged to. And how perhaps the best reparations for the devastation left behind by the Plains Indian Wars might actually be returning the land that was promised in treaties. I'm Melody Edwards. Our story editor is Ojibwe playwright Marty Strenzewilk. Noah Greenspan is the assistant producer and line editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Ryan Kelly is the digital producer. Thanks also for help from Tina Unger-McGee, Emily Jankowski, and Courtney Blackmer-Reynolds. To see Anna Castro's original photography for this season, go to our website at themodernwest.org. Music by Eastern Shoshone musician Sean Francis and his band, Pegasus. Klingit musician, Kasky Russell, and Apache musician Andrew Vasquez, among others. Our theme song is By Screen Door Porch 
This podcast was produced on the University of Wyoming campus that occupies the ancestral and traditional lands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, and Shoshone indigenous peoples, along with other Native tribes who call the Great Basin and Rocky Mountain region home. We recognize, support, and advocate alongside Indigenous individuals and communities who live here now and with those forcibly removed from their homelands. We always love hearing from our listeners. Reach out to us at modernwestpod at gmail.com. We're also on social media at Modern West Pod. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.